Today's show is brought to you by our new sponsor, Cog Network. Cog Network, geared for gain. Cog Network is hedge fund investing evolved. By owning Cog Network tokens, you get exposure to the hedge fund's gains. The hedge fund is comprised of algorithmically traded commodity futures and investment in hard assets related to energy. The first hard asset is partial ownership of a multi-million dollar solar farm that has a crypto mining operation attached. I mean, this is really something that both traditional and crypto investors can come together and participate in. So for traditional investors, they can get exposure to cutting edge blockchain technology in a framework that they're familiar with, a hedge fund, right? And crypto investors can get exposure to an actual security that bears dividends and includes non-crypto assets. So that's super cool. And just for full disclosure, Cog Network is a fully registered and regulated entity qualified by the SEC as a Reg D as well as a Reg S and has a 506C exemption. They've been working with lawmakers since 2017 to get this idea built out in a fully compliant way. Crypt Nation, if you guys are interested in learning more about a tokenized hedge fund, go visit www.cog.network. All right, everybody, we are back. Uh, we are about to have a high energy, high caliber episode. We're going to be covering a lot of stuff. We got a very familiar face to all of you guys, Joshua Frank. Uh, who I think, Joshua, you now deserve the title uh, I think of in maybe like a monthly contributor to Crypto 101. How's that sound? That sounds fantastic. Always, always <laughs> happy. Your 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 community is great to us. Uh, you know, we get we get some great messages via email and on LinkedIn. So so always happy to be a part of the Crypto One community. <laughs> and we're awesome. happy to have you. I hope we get a chance to have you here every month to uh, contribute <laughs> some of the amazing knowledge and data that you're collecting over there. And then we also have with us uh, Sasha Kabali from Kaiko. So Sasha, welcome to Crypto 101 as well. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, Kaiko, I mean, you guys do a lot of really interesting work, one of the biggest data providers. And, and for everybody listening, you guys don't understand how genuine and sincere of a treat this episode is, because these are two guys that not only are very well-spoken and you know very friendly, but they have access to the richest data in crypto period. So these guys have more insight into like really what is going on in the crypto markets, uh, both on the sentiment side, and Josh is gonna focus heavily on telling you guys about how he, he tracks sentiment in the market and, and really quantifies that uh, and gives people actionable signals. Uh, and Sasha is gonna you know, really look at a lot of you know, on-chain type analytics and price analytics. Um, so, so this is going to be a really, tr a real big treat for me. So, you know, before we really dive in uh, to all this stuff, let's just give a, a, a real brief introduction of who you guys are and the sort of data that you guys are working with. Yeah, I can, I can start with that. So this is, this is Joshua, Joshua Frank. So, I, uh, I started the tie as, as many of you may know, in uh, late 2017, early 2018, and. We started looking at sentiment in, in more traditional asset classes. So, you know, equities, futures, Forex, ETFs. What we realized is that, hey, if, if sentiment or the wisdom of the crowd can help, you know, understand price movement of traditional assets like stocks where you have, you know, you, you, you have fundamentals, right? There's revenue, there's dividends, there's earnings to companies like Microsoft and Apple. And, and sentiment can still be used as part of a, a sophisticated model to trade those assets. Well, in crypto, where there's nothing that, you know, really drives, um, you know, there's not really any fundamentals, right? No fundamental drivers of, of movement of Bitcoin or Ethereum or any other asset, for example. Uh, sentiment is a large part of that, right? And in, in, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. 
So that's kind of where we started, you know, coming into the market as a, as a provider of sentiment data, but have significantly expanded. And, and what we are super excited about uh, is we released the first uh, corporate action and significant development product for crypto. So in the, um, in, in, in crypto, what we realized is that information is just siloed across thousands and thousands of different unique sources. For example, you can have hundreds of global regulatory bodies uh, talking about digital assets. So everything from Swiss FINMA to the Japanese FSA, FSA to the Kentucky State Senate, right? You have all these hundreds of different regulatory bodies that are, that are doing, you know, making rulings on crypto that can affect the price. You have exchanges that can announce the listing of individual tokens or assets, and those assets could, could go up by 20, 30% in a matter of minutes. You have, you know, projects announcing mainnet and protocol upgrades and hacks that can affect the price. You have, you know, news being announced in China that can impact price. So you just have thousands of unique sources. And what we realized is there is no way to kind of take in all that information and basically separate out signal from noise and it consolidated in fast manner. So we built technology which goes out and crawls from all these different sources in multiple languages, including Chinese, and basically identifies the most important events for what we call SIG devs or significant developments and basically provide those actionable insights to institutional investors. So for example, uh, we were able to identify Coinbase's listing of Cosmos nine minutes before they tweeted about it. And the price went up by you know, upwards of, of 10, 20% in a matter of minutes after that listing. Uh, you know, we're also working with the biggest publication in crypto and we're providing about 30% of the news behind the scenes now um, by helping them stay on top and track market moving important events. Uh, before it even kind of hits the presses. So those are kind of the two main places that we play, but it's on sentiment and then and then on significant developments as well. Brilliant. Yeah. And, and Sasha, what about yourself? So as Joshua was uh, was mentioning, so they look at the uh, sentiment and once people have formed their view on the markets and how they think the prices are going to move, they need to first have a look at the history, what happened in the past to inform this view. And second, they want to execute to execute, they will go on platforms, exchange platforms. Um, and so what we do at Kaiko is we specialize in building all the infrastructure that is required to have very high quality data uh, on, on the market, what is happening at any given time, not only at what price people are trading at, but also um, how what price people are willing to buy or sell at any given time. Um, and, you know, in the more jargony way, it's uh, we collect tick by tick trade data and order book data. And what we um, specialize in is really building all the pipes, all the infrastructure to collect all the data from those exchange platforms, normalize it, store it, and then redistribute it in a very robust uh, fashion. And so what we do, what we really provide to the market is a very high quality snapshot at any given time in history of what happened and how this view of investors was reflected into pricing. I like to think of you boys as the real-time historians. Uh, you guys are the ones that are really collecting all the data every day and painting us a picture of what's actually going on. I mean, that's what data is. And it's, it's, it's such an important part, but it's now uh, not just history like, you know, history books, but it's, it's actually history data that now technology kind of allows us to do. So you guys, you guys got all this information and you guys put together a quarterly report uh, for eToro, uh, who's actually another uh, good friend of ours. They're, they're a sponsor of Crypto 101 podcast. So shout out to eToro again. Um, you guys put together one of the most comprehensive cryptocurrency state of the union, state of 
the industry addresses. Tell us about that. What were some key takeaways and how do you even want to start attacking this thing? Yeah. So uh, this is Josh again from the ties. So, so we had partnered with eToro um, last year to release a, a sentiment-based uh, cryptocurrency copy portfolio, which you can check out on their website. Uh, we decided to expand our, our relationship with eToro and, and we went beyond just uh, you know, beyond just copy trading. We decided to build, you know, as, as Bryce, Bryce hit on kind of a state of crypto. And so the, the way that that report broke down was really in three, in three key ways. So, so the start of that report, which, which should be available now by the time this podcast is available, is we actually go in-depth in all 15 assets that eToro covers. So we have a, a snapshot page on those individual assets covering key metrics uh, with links to key stories on any of those assets. And then for every asset, we at least have one, but in some cases, up to seven or eight pages of, of in-depth analysis of something specific about that asset. So for example, with Bitcoin, one of the things that we covered in which we can talk about later is how Bitcoin gold and S&P sentiment have, have correlated and changed over time. You know, with, with uh, Bitcoin Cash, for example, we talked about the having and whether anybody cared, hint, nobody cared. Um, but that, you know, that's the first part, right? It was, it was, you know, hey, what's going on uh, in the market on all these different assets that eToro makes available uh, for trading? The second part is we actually brought in some of the, the best minds in crypto and Sasha and Keiko were one of them. So we brought in Delphi Digital, which is a, a leading uh, provider of research reports in crypto, uh, Trade Block, which, which provides different trading, uh, different trading software and data software. And then we, then we brought in Keiko, uh, which focuses on market data. And all three of them went in, in depth on a specific part of the market. So as Sasha will talk about later, he went in depth on, on market data and what happened during the March 12th crash. And the last part is we actually brought in uh, some of our favorite copy traders on eToro, among which were we actually interviewed Bryce and Aaron. So you can go check out their interview. They talked about some of their best and worst trades this quarter. Um, it's, it's a pretty interesting stuff. So that was kind of you know, the main way that we covered it. But the three key takeaways were one is that crypto is maturing. Two is that it's resilient. And that three is that the crypto market is highly but not perfectly correlated. And those are fantastic things to notice because that's just is something that I just started to notice too, that the price of Bitcoin and the sentiment of Bitcoin is now very heavily attached to these global economic factors that have nothing to do with crypto. We used to just stare at crypto panic, looking for crypto news to see what was going to move the market. But now it's things like oil deals and you know small businesses opening in rural Iowa that is making an impact on Bitcoin, if you can believe it or not. What are some other things that you guys found in this quarterly report that really stuck out? Yes. Yeah, so I guess to your point, and, and that's actually something that's really interesting with our significant development product, just to, to, to briefly go into that before we hit the, the report, is we were building a real-time feed for uh, you know information on what's happening in digital assets for customers. But we actually realized about a month or two ago, and we started to get requests from the largest institutions in crypto, was, hey, we don't just want to know that there was a law, there was you know some sort of legal case against Bancorp, for example. There was a there was a lawsuit against Bancorp a couple of weeks ago. We want to know what's happening from a macro perspective. So we actually had to hook up to central banks to look at interest rate changes. We're looking at unemployment claims, all that kind of stuff in real time because it's not just traditional funds that care about that now. 
but crypto funds actually are caring about that, which is really interesting. Funds that we know that were, for example, more ICO related fundamental funds, right? You know, maybe they were started two or three years ago when they were investing mainly in ICOs are now, you know, actively trading crypto and they're taking a macro perspective. They may not even be trading on fluctuations in the crypto market. They're just look. There's, you know, we, there are crypto funds now that are sitting and watching Donald Trump's press conferences every single day, and based off that, deciding how they want to trade crypto. And and one of the determinations that they're making is, you know, that that most of their views seem to be that Bitcoin is a risk off asset, right? It's a hedge against, you know, kind of this macroeconomic, you know, mess that we have, for lack of better terms. And and what's been really interesting is we've actually seen that play out in crypto. So what we did in this quarterly report was. We looked at the correlation between Bitcoin, S&P, and gold sentiment uh, over different months. And what we had seen is that the, the correlation between Bitcoin and gold sentiment was, was basically non-existent for the entirety of history until March. So in, in February 2020, for example, the correlation between Bitcoin and gold sentiment was like, R was like negative 0.0 something. So it was like completely non-existent. And then all of a sudden, R was 0.72. So we went from basically zero correlation to an incredibly high correlation between the sentiment of Bitcoin uh, and gold, which is really interesting. That means that investors are now looking at Bitcoin the same way that they looked at gold. And that just hasn't happened before. Um, and, and what we found even more interesting than that was the fact that in, in February, Bitcoin and S&P actually had the highest correlation uh, sentiment-wise. The, the sentiment of Bitcoin and the S&P were actually pretty highly correlated. And then all of a sudden, that just totally flipped month over month. And now all of a sudden, Bitcoin and gold are looked at almost the exact same way. If you if you guys check out the report on eToro.com, or I'm sure it'll be available on their Twitter, you can actually see day by day looking at the sentiment of Bitcoin versus gold. And it's pretty crazy how you know correlated these things, these two things are. It's it not even just directionally, but numerically. You know, the 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 way that investors are perceiving Bitcoin and gold towards the end of, of Q1 is like nothing we've ever seen before. Yeah. And so when you, you correlate that to market data, um, exactly the same happened. There was a huge spike in the correlation between gold uh, and Bitcoin. And if you look at S&P, that was even more striking. Basically, the one month correlation uh, between Bitcoin and, and the S&P 500 went up threefold just over the, the course of, the, of March 12th. And, and so back to the uh, safe haven narrative, uh, you know, here comes COVID-19. And what, what you can actually think of is, is more, it's not necessarily that um, Bitcoin is inherently correlated to the SAP 500. It's more that COVID-19 is a sort of an exogenous factor that, you know, uh, if you consider that a lot of the value being created by the Bitcoin network is uh, network effects and people being able to build the infrastructure in the future financial system. If those people are sick and uh, cannot build the ecosystem, you have a cut in the uh, in the network effects, and so that might be a a, um, a representation of that hit. Um, that being said, uh, the so the the, co the correlation between a uh, Bitcoin SP is still high and. Obviously, it depends on investors' views too. So we'll see how this evolves. And, and so something really interesting to add to that is one thing that we looked at wasn't wasn't sentiment on Twitter, but it was actually publication articles, right? Articles from the leading publications writing about crypto. And what we found was that in in the last quarter of 2019, I think there were 29 mentions of the having in publications, uh, and there was zero mentions of coronavirus. 
listen to these numbers. In January of uh, this year, there were 25 mentions of coronavirus and 13 mentions of the Bitcoin having. And this is coronavirus in relation to Bitcoin. In February, there were 79 uh. mentions of coronavirus and only 35 mentions of having. In March, there were 231 mentions of coronavirus and 29 mentions of the having. So even as we get closer to the having, mentions are actually going down as coronavirus has just completely taken over the narrative for crypto. And I, yeah, wow. and I think there is a revived interest for cryptocurrencies as people are you know, trying to wrap their mind around this and think, okay, how can this be used? You know, What novel do, do they bring to the system? That's fascinating. It almost feels like to me... Um, you know, most people in the world don't even know what the freaking heck a having is. I mean, people, uh, you, you say it and they look at you like you're crazy and you have to explain to them how, you know, it's how Bitcoin, you know, one of the key functions uh, of Bitcoin's value accrual over time. And so to your point, like typically around this time, we'd have a lot more like in the previous halvings, right? In, in 2012 and 2016, there was more, uh, you know, media relating Bitcoin to the having, and that was the narrative for value driving. And now we don't, we, we have, you know, coronavirus as being the narrative for value driving, but we actually have, which is maybe, um, not, you know, maybe it's a fallacy, right? It's just a narrative, but we have an actual hard fact, a, a cold, hard fact that the having is, uh, what's going to be driving value over the long time. And it's not getting any attention. So it's not even getting priced in correctly. It is getting priced into an extent. Um, but it's a very interesting th- uh, piece of data I mean, that you guys see, bring to up. To see mentions, I mean, to see mentions of the having in crypto publications, right? To see crypto publications writing about the having less in March than they were in <laughs> February, even as we get to less than fifty days away from the having, right. was wild to us. And just to see that massive spike in coronavirus mentions, I mean, is is quite insane. And we actually looked at. Um, as some of you may know, uh, Bitcoin Cash also had a having, and Bitcoin SV had a having. That's right. And just no one cared. Um, we so what we looked at is excuse the fact that this data sounds a bit weird, but what we looked at was January first, uh, twenty nineteen, to eight days before the Litecoin having. The reason we did eight days before the Litecoin having um, was because we released the report or we finished writing the report eight days before the Bitcoin cash having, which is why there was that weird eight days before. Uh, but when we looked at Litecoin's having, what we saw was that Litecoin ran up 176% over the, between January 1st and basically right before it's having. Uh, and if you compare that to Ethereum, Ethereum only went up by 48%, XRP went down by 14%. And it doubled the performance of Bitcoin at, you know, plus 86%. Right. But if we look at Bitcoin Cash is having, which just happened, Ethereum was down 23.8%. XRP was down 32.6%. Litecoin was down 42%. And Bitcoin Cash was down 25%. I mean, there was just no notable outperformance at all. And we looked at the number of headlines in like the months prior to Bitcoin Cash, is ha- you know, having, there were like two headlines on it and like maybe one on Bitcoin SV. So it was pretty pretty interesting to see that coronavirus just completely taken the stage here and wiped away, you know, at least temporarily, almost every narrative that that we've been seeing in crypto. It's true, replacing it. But yeah. I think that's globally. I don't think it's just crypto. Yeah, but the only mentions I've even heard of Bitcoin Cash in the past month is that their hash rate is so dangerously low that it costs less than one Bitcoin to run a fifty-one percent attack on it, and the same for Bitcoin SV. I mean, these whole chains. <laughs> are now in danger of collapsing in on themselves because their having has now made them unminable. I mean, this it, is blows unthinkable. My mind. Yeah, I mean, it think would about, be really Think about the fallout from like if, if Bitcoin Cash was 51% attacked, right? And then completely just 
destroyed. And then what you guys have uh, companies like Coinbase or blockchain.com or whatever, or Bitcoin.com that sell Bitcoin cash. Um, that could have some, some second and third order effects to the crypto community. If we let one of these big chains fail uh, regulatory well, one wise. Of the, one of the interesting things though, is that if you, you guys may remember Ethereum Classic was attacked on January 7th, 2019. And the reason that we looked at that for this report is because IOTA, as many of you know, was hacked. The IOTA wallet, um, the Trinity wallet was hacked this past quarter. Um, and we actually got an exclusive in the report with Dominic Shiner, who's the co-founder of the IOTA Foundation, who addresses that. So some pretty interesting things to read. But what we looked at was how long the impact of the Ethereum Classic hack was on the sentiment of Ethereum Classic. And Ethereum Classic sentiment was hit for basically four months uh, before the market even started to kind of recover even a bit from the hack. Um, so that kind of puts perspective as to, you know, potentially what would happen from a 51% attack of another asset. But I think to your point, it could be even bigger for something like a Bitcoin Cash, um, you know, than, than it was for Ethereum Classic. And this was already over a year ago. Um, and, and I think to your point as well, you know, Bitcoin Cash has become part of, you know, some some products that are now available to the to the mainstream through, I think, uh, like exchange traded products and everything like that. So it could have massive mm -hmm. ramifications. Yeah. Yeah. And also, you know, as you can, as you people are able to borrow and rent hash rate, uh, that's a, a big crypto economic problem. And there, there has been many publications on this. There's very interesting work um, carried out by uh, James Lovejoy from the MIT Digital Currency Initiative. And so you have to look at how much does such an attack cost and what are the economics of it for and what should we do to prevent those attacks to happen? Yeah. Holy crap. Yeah. I think they have um, something like a 10 block checkpoint or something like that. They, they, they I, I think that they're trying to ward off these attacks, but it, but those checkpoints and stuff, the security measures that they have in them offer a higher level of centralization uh, because these are like arbitrary things that only a select group of people who are implementing the Bitcoin cash code base have. Um, that's part of the, one of the reasons why I don't like it as much as a more decentralized currency like Bitcoin, but that's kind of a, a, off topic. Um, I, I kind of want to hop back to Sasha um, and, and focus on that faded day. Um, you know, as we all remember a few Thursdays ago, we, we've talked about it a lot here on the podcast, but it really truly was a significant, significant event where, you know, Bitcoin fell by 40% in a day. And there was a lot of speculation as to, to what really went down. I My little hypothesis that I've clung on to, I've, I've heard some smart people talk about it, um, was that the, Bitme the BitMEX liquidation engine got a little screwy um, and there was just so much leverage that was getting wiped out of the ecosystem um, that Bitcoin potentially was about to flash crash. And so why don't you walk us through that day, what the data was you know, painting a picture of and uh, kind of how you see, you know, maybe that event uh, being good or bad for crypto in the long run. Yeah. So yeah, and I, you know, I think there is Bitmax is not the the one to be the main source of the blame, or it's a whole uh, ecosystem as as a whole. And I, I think the uh, the explosive cocktail which happened on that day, and which is not completely unfamiliar to traditional markets, is is you know this cocktail of falling prices and suddenly many people with highly leveraged positions that are being liquidated for margin calls and that makes the liquidity vanish and then it becomes uh, you start having very intense and all the 
market activities skyrockets and uh, that really pushes uh, on the infrastructural limits of the of the ecosystem and so what happened is basically the number of trades just went up through the roof and like it increased like tenfold in in the matter of uh, of hours and and so all the systems were trying to cope with that very intense activity at the same time um the orders uh, the limit orders available on the order books uh, got completely depleted so people were trying to um sell their assets and there was no liquidity basically and that mostly happened on bitcoin usd not as much on bitcoin usdt but also on the, you know on, on stable coins people were trying to um uh, hedge that and and trying to take advantage of the of the mispricing that we're going on um because of the very uh, intensified trading activity so that really brought uh, all the market uh, on the, on its knees and you know as some people mentioned the uh, when finally bitmax uh, stopped its trading activity that acted as an implicit circuit breakers and you know in, uh, circuit breakers are systems that are in place in traditional markets where when the uh, trading activity is so intense that what you know the rule of investors is to price and incorporate all new information into the prices they give to the markets when there right. is such a rush uh, such a panic going on in the system investors are not able to do this work and so the role of a circuit breaker is to give them slack give them time to breathe and realize what's going on in the market and uh, and sh- and put that into the prices uh, so that the you don't get a just a flash crash that doesn't represent the uh, the fundamental so yeah. i i want to touch on one point that you made right there of you said the the mispricing of the asset during this kind of cataclysmic fall down um who was the winner on that day like who came out on top because obviously everybody who was panic selling lost because now prices are already about 100% higher than they were after that crash so who, what was the trade who won so Definitely not people who were being liquidated, um, but it's uh, you know in very high volatility. Usually, people who trade at high frequency and are able to move around uh, a lot of liquidity and provide the, this liquidity to the market um, can be big winners at uh, those times. And by mispricing, there are two different types of mispricing. There's the mispricing coming from the panic. attack and the every people going in all the directions and not reflecting the fundamental value and then there is a second mispricing which is with all the trading activity going on um people you know differences between exchanges occurring with significant price change differences so basically it's like okay this the exact same bitcoin i could buy it at one price on one exchange and at a completely different price on the other so if i'm able to sell on one and buy on the other uh, then i can uh, make the difference it was all the arbitrage opportunities that these guys these really fast well connected traders could take advantage of all those uh you know different pricing on different venues um that's really really interesting and um there was one of other- have some data on that there was a uh, i i'm trying to find this there's an old telegram message that was sent but <laughs> i was uh i was talking to i think it was actually here it is i was talking to somebody in the space and this was a this was a live quote at one point Coinbase Pro was at $5,599.86 whereas Itbit was at $4,490.75. So there was over wow. an an $1100 price difference. 
between those. So the people that, that, was that could really uh, capitalize on that opportunity, those, those guys, I mean, who have the liquidity and the speed uh, really got a, a ton of great positions. Do you have a friend who's interested in getting into cryptocurrency, but they don't know where to start building their portfolio? Well, we have the answer. It's called Copy Trader by eToro. With Copy Trader, you can automatically copy every trade of eToro's top crypto traders, just like myself or Bryce or Kevin, at the exact price point and in real time. No need to study up on markets or develop your own strategies. Simply just sign up and copy our trades. Any profits that we make, you do too. Proportional to your investment, of course. With eToro, you get access to the world's most popular cryptocurrencies with transparent trading fees all in one easy-to-use app. Copy the smart money with eToro. Join now at eToro.com slash crypto 101. Thank you. And that brings me to my kind of my last question about this is, was that enough to put in a serious long-term bottom? Do you guys think enough to take out 20K? That that capitulative you know, event right there with massive selling and the market absorbing it and are we now in stronger hands ready I for the, the market? Aaron. I want to quote Aaron on this one. So Aaron in the quarterly report called it a black swan event. And I think that's the right way to put it. Um, you know, it's a one-off event. I, I don't like to call tops or bottoms because I don't know more than anybody else that's listening knows about the market or anybody else thinks they know about the market. Unless you're Satoshi and you control, you know, but you see the data. I, I wouldn't sell yourself short because you do see the data. Uh, and, we do, and we see don't the, see that. we do see the data, but but the thing is, the market changes so much. Sentiment changes so frequently that in, in traditional assets, when we look at sentiment, we have to create a, you know, our baseline sentiment metric that we look at is sentiment over the last day versus the previous 20 days. That's basically, it's, it's rolling. So it's a rolling 24 hours. So if it's, you know, right now it's 2.36 p.m. Pacific time, uh, it would look at 2.36 p.m. Pacific time today. A 20 day moving average. Versus a 20-day moving average, but crypto is so incredibly volatile that we have to create a metric that looks at the last hour versus the last 24 hours, um, just because this market changes every second. Um, and it's not just it's not just price movement that it's volatile, but it's also sentiment. And so, while sentiment may be positive for a given period of time, and from a longer perspective, time term perspective, be positive, things can change at a flip of flip of a hat. I mean, we basically saw that with this flash crash, right? where nobody expected this, right? How could you have expected this? Um, and so I think it's it's impossible. Hey guys, TiVo here to tell you about the Ufi Video Lock, a smart lock, a 2K camera, and a doorbell all in one. That's right, three in one for triple the security. It's easy to install. All you need is a Phillips screwdriver, no drilling required. It gives you keyless entry, so no more fumbling your keys when you have your hands full coming back from the grocery store. No more worry about the kids losing a house key. No more worry about a guest losing the house key or forgetting the passcode on your door. And for Airbnbers, it's a no-brainer as you can change the passcode at will between renters. It has available fingerprint recognition and it has AI self-learning chips. So the more you use it, the more accurate it's going to be. You will have no anxiety with the battery charging. It is a rechargeable battery and it lasts around four months. But don't worry, when it's low, it'll give you plenty of weeks notice. And also, it always comes with a physical key as a backup. There's no monthly fee, unlike other brands that charge you a monthly fee to get your backup recording. They're always recorded locally and you will always have access. Customer support for the Eufy Video Lock is 24-7, so you don't have to worry about any issues you have, and it comes with an 18-month warranty. 
What I love about this product is it is truly all-in-one with the three-in-one. You don't have to go out and buy multiple parts. It's all in this package with the Eufy Video Lock. So if you're interested in learning more, go on Amazon and search Eufy Video Lock. That's E-U-F-Y Video Lock or visit eufyofficial.com slash video lock. Again, that's E-U-F-Y Video Lock. Eufy Video Lock. Get complete control over your front door. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Possible to tell, but I think what, what the Flashcraft proves, and this is one of our key takeaways to the report, is that crypto is resilient. Despite the fact that every asset basically fell by 50%, 40% of, of, of assets still finished up in Q1, um, which is pretty awesome. And 60% wow. actually, to the point that I think was being discussed earlier, it saw an increase in tweet volume. So even though we had this giant flash crash, 40% of assets still finished up. And now I think the majority are probably up since the beginning of, uh, the beginning of, of January of this year, despite this 50% drop. And, and the majority of assets are seeing increases in conversations. So, you know, I think you just have to take that as a one-off event um, and, and something that hopefully doesn't happen again. Or for people that made money, I guess some people hope that it does. But a and lot just, of people lost money. And to support that point, you know, how fast sentiment changes, this is one of the moments that I'm going to remember for the rest of my life. I remember exactly where I was, what was going on. It was about 3 a.m. Pacific time. And I'm sitting at my computer watching this red candle form on Binance. I've just gotten liquidated from a position (laughs) that I was open way too early. And I'm thinking, my God, you know, this is devastating. And then it loses another $1,000. Half hour goes by and I get a call from Daryl from Cog Network. And he says, are you watching this? And excitedly, I said, yeah, this is the best buying opportunity since I've been in Bitcoin. And he says, yeah, that's right. And we sat there watching it go all the way down to 38. And as soon as that uh, candle finally wicked at the very bottom and started climbing back up, we smashed that buy button and it was, it was like New Year's. Yeah. And I, I mean, in I the span I, of a half an hour, it was from devastating to New Year's. Yeah. And, and I want to add so, uh, as a lot of people in the crypto space know, um, I sold all of my crypto holdings in December of 2017 when Bitcoin hit 10K. The first time that I bought Bitcoin since December 2017 was I got in at $44,023. Wow. 
Um, because I was like, this move makes zero sense. And I've been dollar cost averaging ever since then, continuing to buy even as the price approaches and in, in, in went above $7,000. Because I was like, this event made zero sense. The fundamentals were there. What we have in crypto now, you know, I've been working in this space full time for two, two and a half years. The infrastructure, the data, the technology, the custody, the trade execution, everything that's in place, the, the actual you know, protocols that are being developed are just so far ahead of where they were that this event just made zero sense to me. And I was like, this is the best time to now, buy. Bro- I didn't buy a lot, so I can't say I was a big winner. Um, but but my, point, my point just being that um, you know, it was a trigger to me for the first time in over two and a half years that I have to get back in. That's phenomenal. Now, Bryce mentioned earlier his theory about why this happened and, you know, the mechanics behind it. I have a theory of my own, and maybe you guys can have some data that either supports or works against this. But my theory is there was this uh, plus token scam that had collected over a billion dollars. And due to the global uncertainty, the remaining holders, you know, I think already six of these people have been arrested. Maybe there's there's a few more that felt like uh, the fuzz was close to them. You know, the heat was coming and they decided that they were going to liquidate the rest of their Bitcoin holdings and just try and make a run for it. Have you guys seen any truth to this or have you heard? Yeah, I mean, I can, I can take that. So we don't, don't really look at on-chain data. Um, I, 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 you know, there are lots of great companies that do. Um, Sasha may have, have some form of opinion, but I've definitely heard that as well. And, and I would say that it wouldn't be surprising if that was part of it. I mean, I think this was, to Sasha's point earlier, this was just a combination of a ton of things happening at the same exact time. And that could have probably just added to this deadly spiral. But I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, they have, you know, had at least, you know, hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars worth of Bitcoin that at some point they were planning to liquidate. So, you know, that was going to have downwards pressure on the market whenever it happened. Yeah. yeah, And and also, you know, you have the interaction between on-chain and off-chain. Um, for example, if you want to uh, move assets between uh, between exchanges or sometimes you can, you know, just withdraw in, in one uh, asset or another. So there might be somewhere there, but I don't have uh, any more specific view on this. You guys should, uh, you guys should bring somebody, bring somebody on from, uh, token analyst or or trade block mm. or coin metrics or, or somebody there to glass see it glass node there, there are tons of them tons of great companies uh yeah to, if to you have if you guys have thesis. any connections uh, at one of those companies I, i'd love an email intro that that'd be super cool um and, and sasha yeah, one of the pleasure. other sasha one of the other things uh that i think you probably have some decent insight into uh might have been uh, as you know uh, as ethereum which is the reserve currency for DeFi as the value, the dollar value of Ethereum kind of crashed down to around 85, 90 bucks. Um, it, it threw a lot of screwiness into the DAP market, uh, into all these decentralized projects. What went down there? Uh, so the, if you look at slippage and uh, the, even if you look at very down into the tip back to trade data and all the transactions that happen on exchanges, the main trades are actually quite similar between, uh, if you look at Bitcoin, Ethereum, or even XRP. Um, so the, really, the, there was a big move uh, being driven and people were trying you know, to, um, uh, to adapt to that. And it's a highly nonlinear and chaotic behavior that took place at, at that time. Yeah. And I, I think to add to that, this is actually something that we go a bit in depth 
on in the quarterly report. So I think the first thing to cover on is is that DeFi has become a huge part of Ethereum and of crypto. Yep. So when we looked at Ethereum headlines uh, this past quarter, DeFi was actually the sixth most used word. This the five words before Ethereum were before uh, before DeFi were uh, Ethereum, price, Bitcoin, BTC, XRP, and then DeFi was the sixth most used word after that. So DeFi has become a massive, massive part of the Ethereum story and a massive part of the narrative. And we saw that ETH locked in uh, in DeFi went up from $686 million to a high of $1.24 billion on uh, February 14th. So it, it, it more than doubled, but it ended up actually closing the quarter at about $552 million, which is you know less than what had... Um, you know, what, what, what that started the quarter at, but I think to your point as to what actually happened, um, you know, basically these auctions were forced on MakerDAO because the price of Ethereum fell so much, um, where basically, um, you know, there's this idea that, you know, there these, there's these ideas of, you know, collateralization, right. And these vaults on MakerDAO, uh, which were supposed to be holding, um, you know, which were supposed to be holding ETH to mint DAI, which is the USD backed stablecoin for for uh, for MakerDAO, basically were under collateralized. And what happened was it, it it caused this massive spiraling of events that went from MakerDAO having a five hundred thousand dollar surplus to a four million dollar debt. And what would have happened is as the price was crashing, if they had to go out and 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 you know basically close these contracts, right? And put all this ETH back on the market, you would have had this further right. spiral of Ethereum being put up for sale. I think it was 2.4 million Ethereum tokens, which are now locked in DeFi or were at the time, going up for sale at a time where ETH prices were crashing. Wow. And I mean, that just would have completely, completely crashed the price of ETH. So what they ended up doing was they had an auction for MKR token, tokens, basically to, to, to cover the 4.5 million in under collateralized debt. So we cover that in the report, and you can read you can read a bit more about that. But uh, we saw just absolutely massive um, the highest. I think the highest point in the quarter, or the second highest date in the quarter, was March twelfth in terms of uh, uh, Ethereum price. And it was on March twelfth when it had its highest price. It also had its lowest sentiment on the entire quarter. Well, it just goes to show to your point about you know the crypto market is resilient. There are these you know, these fail safe mechanisms or whatever, um, they end up working. It just shows that the system's working. That's pretty cool. Well, Maker just got, uh, there's now a lawsuit that just came out today on Maker for 20 something million dollars. So something to who's, keep a look out for. It's who's a class suing the Maker lawsuit. Foundation? It's, it's a why? class action for what happened. I haven't read through the entire thing. I saw Cointelegraph wrote a story on it. I was filed in California, but it's basically a class action for basically misrepresenting the risk of what happened, um, and 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 something to do with I, I don't want to I don't want to misrepresent the story because I, I unfortunately haven't had a chance to read it. It just came out a couple hours ago. Um, but but basically the way that Maker reacted to this by forcing an auction um, was basically misrepresented, and there there are people that were operating vaults on MakerDAO that could have made more money than they actually did. So they're suing for that that and then they're suing for punitive damages so i think it's 8.9 wow. million in damages and then an additional 20 million in punitive damages so we'll see oh i mean the uh you know we've seen DeFi take a take a bit of a fall and i, I mean DeFi has become such an integral part of ethereum and as part of the narrative i mean consensus just the other day released their own DeFi tracker um 
So I, you know, it's, it's, it is now a big part of, of the Ethereum story. I mean, I think smart contracts, you know, when Ethereum was first, were first announced was, you know, were the big thing that everybody was excited for. And it seems like that, you know, a lot of that has moved, at least in terms of conversations and coverage to, to DeFi. Um, so it will be interesting to see what the, what the fallout is, but I think DeFi being resilient and, you know, maker not going down, not having to shut down their network, the 2.4 million ETH not flooding onto the market does also, to your point, prove that resiliency. And what we're seeing uh, just recently is a website called uh, DeFiMarketCap.com that was just launched. So now you have a whole section just to be able to see where all this liquidity is and what uh, decentralized finance products that are out there. It's a really interesting view of the market that we never had before. And I think I think one thing that we think is really important, or, or I guess two things. So one is related to ETH and one is related to Bitcoin. Something that we think people should start taking a look at is the amount of Ethereum that's locked in DeFi. Because if we get to a point where 30 or 40% of Ethereum are locked in, is locked in DeFi, that means there's a lot less supply on the market if demand remains the same, right? right Which is a huge right, right. positive price catalyst. And on the same note, you have these ideas of exchange-traded products. So for example... Uh, Grayscale, uh, which is owned by DCG, has a product called GBTC, which is the Grayscale Bitcoin Investment Trust. And there's a large percentage of, of Bitcoin supply that's now locked in that product. So if you start to see these exchange traded products that require, uh, you know, basically depositing Bitcoin or Ethereum or anything else like that, if we start to see, and these are relatively illiquid products, right? And people aren't just going actively onto the market and trading the underlying Bitcoin, they're trading GBTC. What that does is that basically reduces the supply of the assets. So if, if more and more people start locking money in DeFi, for example, or start putting their money in ETPs, I think that could be a very large positive price catalyst as well, because one, with 100%. the having with Bitcoin, you're now reducing the new supply. But then on top of reducing the new supply, there's this demand for exchange-traded products and, and investment trust, which is locking up even a, a larger percentage of supply. And, and the other day, we saw a report come out on the fact that you know, a lot of a lot of Bitcoin hasn't been transacted in ten years, so it's probable that people lost private keys. Yep. So this the free floating supply of Bitcoin is even less than anybody said because you have money locked in ETPs, because private keys are lost, because the you know the new supply issuance rate is going down. And I think those are all right. There's so many factors. If and, it continues, I mean, yeah, the supply by itself, and that's very frustrating because from a portfolio allocation perspective, you need to know the supply number, and it's so difficult to to find. And and I mean, for Bitcoin, there are ways. There's a floating uh, uh, supply, and there are other techniques. I think one of the best uh, ways to calculate it is uh, the methodology developed by Masari. Um, but it's there. There are chains and coins for which you don't just don't even have enough transparency to calculate something meaningful. And that's, that's a huge issue because if you don't know the mm -hmm. supply, you don't know how to do your allocation. Right. And, and we saw the, I think it was stellar, the inflation bug that basically nobody identified a couple of years ago. It was another, yep. maybe it wasn't stellar, you know, another asset where there's an inflation bug and you didn't notice it. So I, I agree. I mean, I think, understanding what the actual physical supply is on the market and like what is the, the max amount that could be liquidated today right like right. that's really important to know um and i think you know for, for for you know to the point of the having it's pretty easy to know right because you know before you had what about 1200 bitcoin forgive me if i'm wrong being mined every day now you're going to go to half of that right so we now know that or maybe what would you say you know 800 what would you say then is um an accurate 
measure uh, beyond market cap, which accounts for the last time these Bitcoin have moved. Would that be realized yeah. market value or? I still think we need a, a better measure. So if anybody's listening, um, please, please work on it. I mean, I think, I think, I think price is a good measure because what it represents is there are buyers in the market and there are sellers in the market and that's where they're meeting. Right. And so maybe it's very difficult to measure market cap, but at least price is price is kind of a, you know, prices is where buyers and sellers are meeting right now. Right. So um, I haven't found any measure of market cap that I'm super excited about yet. Um, We continue to just use market cap and price. Alongside that, I wanted to ask you guys while we have you here, what kind of data is most requested by your institutional clients as opposed to what us retail guys are looking at at coin market cap? You know, what are these, you know, huge fund managers looking at to make their informed decision? Sasha, I'll let you take that one first. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, on, on our end, the focus is really on the data infrastructure, uh, how to get the data reliably, not just the data, but then, of course, the data quality. And as far as our offering is concerned, you know, one of the biggest, hottest things is the audiobook data. Having, you know, clear, clean snapshots of what happened, what was the liquidity, what were the limit orders that were being placed on all the marketplaces at a given time, and doing that historically back to even when the uh, the asset started trading on the platform. And doing that uh, is really hard to do it reliably in our scale. And you know that's why we have 80% of engineers on our team and we focus a lot on the tech and the product. So it's really about this very low granularity and having high quality data to inform uh, high level and uh, you know, very accurate trading decisions. Yeah, I think, I think broadly to Sasha's point, I would agree, right? Where with data, history is everything, right? If you have a data set that you're building, but you only have one or two months of history, it's not exciting, right? What people are excited about is when we can say we can go back three or four years on a data set um, where you can build and you can backtest models, right? So regardless of the data point that you're looking at, what's really important is that you have clean granular history, right? So for example, one thing that we can do for our customers is I can show you every single time there was a partnership on any coin, anytime there was M&A activity in the crypto space, anytime there was a lawsuit against this, you know, this asset or anything like that. But it's not just the fact that you can tell them that, it's that you can go back in history and say over the last year, over the last two years, this is every time it's happened. This is how when there was a lawsuit in crypto, this was how the market reacted from a sentiment point of view. This is how the market reacted from a trading volume point of view. This is how the market reacted from a price point of view, right? And being able to put this broader picture together, right? And combine all these different indicators to take a more nuanced view of the market, right? Nobody is that we work with at least is really looking at one thing. It's looking at a combination of things, right? So it's looking at 10 or so different metrics to give you a broad view, because it's not just one thing, as we kind of discussed in this liquidation spiral that moves the market. It's a combination of factors that will end up with something happening, which is, which is why it's also very hard to give anything, you know, which is why I would never give a price prediction, because you don't know what's going to happen because there's 15 different things that are driving price, right? So what you just try to do is, is, is get the best understanding of what has happened in the past so that when a situation arises in the future, you at least have you know history of how the market reacted to that, yeah. so, so you can it, make the most educated guesses about right. how to act. You know, yeah. so that you right. have the, the means to experiment on what happened. And you know, it's the garbage in, garbage out problem. If your data is not good, then you can't get and you can't rely on the insights that you derive from it. 
Right. Gentlemen, I, I've got one last question. This is one where, you know, take a deep breath. That was a lot. <laughs> we covered a lot, uh, a lot of data. Um, but I don't want to lose sight also of the philosophical reasons that we are here uh, in cryptocurrency um, from a from a really high level. And so could you guys kind of just close out with, you know, is the philosophy of crypto of this, you know, this money that is a global, you know, decentralized currency, is it coming to fruition? Is that really, is that really what's happening right now? Or is it still in your mind, just a speculative vehicle? How is it being used? What, what is it? I, I can start on this one. I, I don't, I don't think it's slowing down for sure. And, you know, even with the, because a lot of the community developing all those ecosystems is, has been, you know, historically working remotely, uh, even with the work from home policies, a lot of the projects have just kept uh, going on just as usual. Um, the, you know, the pricing issue, whether you can predict whether it's mostly speculative or not, it's, it's, always, uh, it's always a tricky question. And this, you know, especially for something which is some phenomenon, which is quite entrepreneurial, where, you know, it's all about how the projects are going to grow and how the adoption is going to uh, is going to match. That being said, I I, I think it's the one of the best time ever. Uh, there is renewed renewed interest in the markets. Uh, people are looking for new types of solutions uh, for the for the future of finance. And the you know crypto solutions do bring uh, automation mechanisms and things to just you know just do things that were done manually and that shouldn't be done manually anymore. And just have released this friction and build on top of that. Yeah, I mean, look, I think there's definitely a level of speculation that's still here. But I think what's interesting that we've seen is unlike in 2017, you're not seeing, for the most part, total crap have these giant run-ups, um, right? You're not just seeing whatever random, like, sorry to call you out, but Dentacoin at one point was worth like $2 billion. I, Look, I haven't read that much about Dentacoin. Maybe it's life-changing for dentists. Like, I, but it was worth billions of dollars. Like, how does that make any sense, right? And now it's worth like $2 million, right? You're not seeing that anymore. So I think that level of speculation has largely left the market. Um, what we still do see, and the reason that we build significant developments products and identify these things in real time is because, you know, events can still move this market way more than any other asset class, right? Like, this company partnered with, with this... Like Justin's son, you know, actually goes for lunch with Warren Buffett and the price of Tron went up by like 11% a day. Like, like if, if Tim Cook went to lunch mm -hmm. with Warren Buffett, Apple stock's not even going up 1%. It's not even going up one tenth of 1%. Nobody cares, right? right. So you still have in. a little bit of, it doesn't get priced in. So we're still pricing in dumb things, uh, <laughs> to be frank. Um, but I think we are... I think we should separate altcoins for Bitcoin for a second here. And, and with Bitcoin, Bitcoin has become a conversation piece among people trying to allocate their wealth. Um, you know, even people that aren't currently in crypto, right? And, and Bitcoin has become this, um, at least from a narrative perspective, this hedge against uncertainty. Yeah, and Josh, let me ask see you how that, like sure. on a, on a on a personal. I think that's a great point that you bring up. And just like on a personal level, uh, Sasha, I'm curious about you too. Like how you just said now people are starting to actually look to Bitcoin as, you know, potentially a investmental like, or a 
portion of your portfolio that you can start allocating things to. Do you have any like friends or family, like on a personal level that have come to you and been like, Hey Josh, I know you're the crypto guy. Give me the down low because that's happened in my life. Like this is like people that I haven't talked to in years uh, that are now talking to me about investing in crypto. Yeah. And I, I I don't like giving any investment advice, but I think last time I was on and we did a full, full episode um, you know, I said, if you're going to allocate, you know, I like to recommend, you know, I think we should make a push in crypto and anybody listening to that's going out to a friend or a family, don't tell anybody to put 10% of their money in crypto. Don't tell anybody to put 20% of their, their money in crypto. As we saw with this Black Swan event, the market could still crash by 50%. But but the point is that crypto is now being part of this 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 conversation around being a hedge against macroeconomic uncertainty. And, and you know, I think Bitwise put out some research where a ton of a ton of um, investment advisors were hearing from their cus- customers that they were interested in crypto. Like it was a big number, right? And 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 there's that renewed interest. And I'm hearing from my mom, my mom's friends, my friends from a bunch of different people. And what I say is, look, I think it's a really interesting asset class to hold in your portfolio because it's just not correlated to anything else. And sure, you may have like a month when it's correlated to this, or a month where it's correlated to that. But I think it's even better if Bitcoin isn't a hedge against macroeconomic uncertainty, but it's just a completely uncorrelated asset class. So I mean, the way that I approach the market is put one or 2% of your money in crypto. And I think it makes sense, especially during this, you know, like airlines right now are down 90%. Is there an opportunity to invest in airlines? Like it doesn't make sense that the stock market is only down, you know, less than 20%, right? When airlines are getting wrecked, restaurants are getting wrecked, cruise lines are getting wrecked, commercial real estate transactions are down 70%. Like, Everything is getting wrecked and right. Bitcoin is just not correlated to anything else. And it's just a really interesting asset class. So I'll say it's really interesting. I won't tell you to put your money into it, but now I feel more confident. Can't I mean, ignore I, it. I you personally answer the put my money yeah. in it. Yeah. yeah. I yeah, personally the people, the put my money in it for the first time it. since 2017. Right. Yeah, this is the first time I felt comfortable putting my money in, in over two and a half years. And I've been working full time in this space. And also now it's becoming easier and easier to put money in, you know, like it's way easier than before to have a wallet to secure your uh, your tokens. And it's, uh, you know, as Josh, Josh mentioned, or and it, when I whenever I wear a Bitcoin, a T-shirt with a Bitcoin on it, I often get asked by merchants or even even at the hospital by a, a nurse, I got asked, oh, should I buy? Hmm. Usually oh, yeah. <laughs> first learn what risk is. Because if you think about it as an investment, it's different than if you think about it as an experiment and trying to understand what this is. And you just put a negligible amount of your wealth in something where you want to experiment with, you know, see how different it is from, from fiat, how, how you can buy stuff with it, how, what, what things can be done. And I think that's a more educational approach uh, for, for people who don't have the, um, the wealth uh, to really invest in it, but still start to become familiar to it. And there, and, also for people who want to have bigger wealth and want to allocate some of their um, uh, portfolio to it, it's, it provides, you know, it, it diversification benefits and the institutional means to do that are being built up and are becoming much more mature than they used to be. And then I would have one, one more thing, which is you probably have the cash app you know somebody has a cash app everybody has twenty dollars or thirty dollars sitting around in the cash app just put your first 20 bucks in crypto you don't need to put a million dollars you don't need to put ten thousand dollars you need to put a thousand dollars but just see how easy it is to do use eToro for example we wrote an awesome report they're they're a great platform and a great company 
Um, you know, go on eToro. It's really easy to buy or you can, you know, copy somebody else's, you know, trades, our trades, for example. But you don't need to start even with $100. Just start with $20, put your money in and don't really look at the price, right? If you have a belief that Bitcoin's going to go or go up over the long run over the next two or three years, it doesn't matter if you buy it five grand or you buy it seven grand, right? Yeah. In the long run, it doesn't matter if, if Bitcoin's going up, right? So, so take that perspective and just put what you're willing to lose. You know, put $20. It doesn't need to be a lot, but just just get started. Yeah, and, yeah, and I think you, and also you need to you know, know what your passion or what the reason you, know, you want to try it is. What, what is your driver? I think that helps a lot, uh, getting interested about the space, learning more, and, and not just, okay, getting some and then leaving it on a wallet somewhere for years and never looking at it. Right. Yeah. Getting involved in, in like how, you know, to really tie it back to the initial question about the philosophy behind the whole crypto revolution. Uh, I'm glad to always bring it back to that kind of stuff. And, and Pete, what do you think of all this stuff, man? What's going on in your crazy melted uh, cheese brain? Mine? <laughs> well, the cheese is starting to solidify and I'm able to open my eyes again. I still believe in Bitcoin in long term very much. The short term looks so weird. I mean, I never thought we would see the stocks and Bitcoin kind of move up and down together. That kind of baffles me. Um, and it's concerning, at least in you know the very, very short term. Like right now, if we look at uh, our one-day charts, you know, Bitcoin is in this little wedge, and it doesn't know whether to break out or break down. But, um, you know, I'm looking to the end of, you know, 2020, the end of 2021. Um, my long-term vision has not changed whatsoever. So despite these really turbulent times, despite the Black Swan event, um, I mean, crypto is just going to keep on going despite the coronavirus, because here's the thing. Bitcoin has no days off. The decentralized nodes don't get sick. There's no CEO to tell Bitcoin miners to go home and shut down their machines because a president of some country said that businesses have to shut down. And Bitcoin is the most essential business of all because the governments have fucked up our world so bad we have to rely on it. So it's not going anywhere. Bitcoin's here to stay. And Andreessen Horowitz just announced that they're raising another $450 million crypto fund today after they'd already raised a $350 million one. This is despite coronavirus, wow. despite the Black Swan event that happened you know, a couple of weeks ago, despite all of that, <laughs> Andreessen is not only doubling down, they're doubling down and trying to raise more money and close that fund within the week. Um, Amazing. So, so that's real money. The demand's um, that's there. Real money in this who is and like I've heard of Andreessen Horowitz, but at a high level, for those who don't know much about them, who are they? They're one of the largest venture capital firms in the world. So they do a okay, lot of uh, venture capital based investing within within crypto. They're they're yes, yeah, so they're VCs, so they're making long term investments. The, these guys aren't these guys aren't buying and selling. A, you know, maybe they're investing long term in Ethereum, for example, or whatever asset. But they're not day trading Ethereum, right? They have a, Got it. you know, they when they raise a fund and they invest in something or they they have a thesis, it's a long term thesis, kind of like Chris Bernisky and placeholder within crypto, where they're investing in the long long run and and, and making efforts with these protocols uh, to help improve them. For example, Chris has done a lot of work with Decred um, with his one hundred million dollar fund. Um, with with you know with Andreessen, they're they're investing in DeFi and the base layer at you know different things built on top of DeFi. I think that was mentioned in their press release. Um, you know they may be investing in other companies, but they're investing in the infrastructure for crypto. They're not you know they're not looking at this as a speculative thing. They're looking at this as a long term uh, a long term you know play in the market. Brilliant. All right. Well, guys, thank you for joining us, and uh, we'll definitely keep you in the rotation, as they say. 
Thanks, thanks for having us. Always, <laughs> always a pleasure to be be on with uh, with with both of you guys, Bryce. And I. Yeah. Thanks, By the way, where where can they uh, download the eToro report that you guys put together when it's available? I can get you the exact URL. Give me one. Yeah, second. give it to me. And guys, it's going to be in the show notes. So if you guys uh, close out of the episode, it'll be in the show notes. Uh, you could click that, and you'll get brought to the eToro report that these boys put together. All right, take it easy, everyone. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.